Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us on episode number 56 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is an accomplished Hold'em and mixed game player. He's an author, a coach, a columnist, and he even runs his own poker tour. He's a WSOP 10K horse champion who's also made deep runs in the main event with almost $1.2 million in career tournament earnings. You may have heard the term short stack ninja, but this man may actually be the short stack ninja because he literally wrote the book on it. Chris Wallace, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. What an intro. Oh, I love it. And <laughs> and I did not know this was the most friendly poker podcast. I'll be on my very best smilingest behavior. Wonderful. In that, in that case, we can certainly get on our way. Um, I can't help but start off, Chris, with a huge Congratulations to you on your recent marriage. I'm very, very happy for you uh, to, uh, you know, your longtime uh, love, Jordan. How was the wedding? It was fantastic. Thank you. Um, you know, thing, it was crazy to try to plan on very short notice. Um, it was it was really a, a mountain of work, both before and after cleaning up after and the whole thing. I mean, we, we tried to do it on a reasonable budget and ended up doing it on very short notice to try to get it in before. Things we were afraid things were going to get crazy with the pandemic here right. again, and uh, so, but it it turned out to be an absolutely beautiful day. It worked out great. It was fan- it was a wonderful, and I got to see a ton of people I haven't seen in years. That's the best. And they stuck yeah, around really uh, nice. town afterwards and, and treated you to various dinners. I understand. Uh, that did happen. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then once we got back to Vegas, yeah, it's been. Uh, and and I stuck around town for a week to go to a writer's conference that a friend of mine runs oh, and nice. do a seminar on self-publishing there and talk to them about that. And that was really fun. I learned a bunch of things about writing while I was there. So I, so I stayed the next weekend as well and uh, got and to where, see Where did you get married? Minnesota? That area? Yeah, in St. Cloud, Minnesota. My, beautiful. Uh, my wife's parents live up there on a beautiful home on a lake with flowers everywhere. And it's, it was a perfect spot. Wonderful. So, yeah. And now you're making your home together in Las Vegas. Right. Yeah. We bought a house uh, three years ago. Wonderful. Well, very good. Uh, and, you know, wishing you both a very long and happy life together. Thank you. Um, well, before I begin my questions about your poker career and those ventures, I also have to say thank you. I don't know if you remember or if you realize this, Chris, way, way back in February 2013, you were actually the first person to interview me back on your old under the gun poker podcast oh uh, yeah way back then so it's a uh thank you and it's a pleasure to finally return that favor (laughs) yeah that was a long time ago those were really fun i we they're kind of there was a lull in in the the poker world there for a little while where it just wasn't worth it to do it we've talked about doing it again now that it's now that you can do this so easily online yeah you know it's so smooth now it was it was hard in 2013 to, to do interviews over the internet and get them to sound reasonably good but now it's great this is amazing for sure and you know thankfully we both uh come uh, quite a ways from where we were in february 2013 um one interesting event you talk about the pandemic um i know you were involved uh very heavily before this whole pandemic began was you know the i ninja poker tour um first of all for those who have not heard of it can you tell us who the tour's target audience uh, is, was, that sort of thing. The tour started in Minnesota like 10 years ago, almost something like that. 
And, um, and the guy who created it was a great promoter and marketer and a great sales guy and not great with running a business or managing money. And it, so it really blew up and it was, was, you know, said it like they had over a thousand people at a tournament in Iowa, like in, in their second year, it was amazing. The, the, the way that it blew up and then kind of fell apart and uh, languished for a couple of years. And I had been interested in starting a tour for, for years. I wanted to be part of, of a tour. So I, you know, I was the ambassador for the MSPT for a few years. I was, uh, I worked with some other tours. I helped Pocket Fives run some events as well. And um, so when uh, we were talking about putting together a poker tour, we'd actually kind of already done it when uh, the owner of iNinja approached me and just said, hey, I want you to have iNinja. I, I don't know what to do with it. I can't run it anymore. And so uh, so we took it. And um, because of some of the problems that had the name, had a little trouble at first. Like there was this great name recognition but there was also some potential negatives attached to it. And we knew that right. at the time, right? We knew that we were taking that on. And so we couldn't have anybody without just absolute perfect integrity and reputation involved. And uh, that, I think that I qualify for that. There's nobody yeah. who I owe money to or that speaks ill of me. And there's, and my uh, wife is a, has a law degree and has worked with the poker law firm a little bit. And then uh, we brought in our business partner, Brian Soja, who won the nice guy award at the Minnesota poker awards uh, two years in a row. And it's just, it's just like that. (laughs) He's just roundly loved. He's just this great guy. So, um, so the three of us decided to bring this thing back and we ran a couple of small events to kind of test things. Learned a lot doing that broadcasting uh, poker is much harder than I thought. Yeah. Um, And if you don't do it perfectly, everyone's mad at you. Of course. Uh, <laughs> well, the standards are high nowadays, yeah. Right. Um, and there's so much content out there now, especially with Poker Go, that, I mean, why would you watch anything less than brilliantly produced content when there's four or five places making really great stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we signed up with uh, Atlantis in Reno. Right. And they were amazing. We we went and visited some <clears throat> properties up there and just loved Atlantis. And so we talked to them about running a thing and they do a ton of mixed game stuff there. So that was extra bonus for me and, um, and, and signed on to do one with them. So in 2019, like in March of 2019, we had a big event, a big series there, which was great. Um, did, did better in terms of numbers than the previous series, even though nobody had really heard of us in that area. And so we're, we're, we will be doing some more stuff with them and probably with Monarch in Colorado, their sister city or their sister casino, um, likely doing some more stuff in the Midwest soon. We're talking to a lot of places and haven't really nailed anything down. Everybody's very nervous about the pandemic and not booking yeah. a lot of poker tours right now. Sure. Right, so you had, I guess, what, about a handful, you know, maybe half a dozen uh, events under your belt before the whole pandemic hit. Um, and you're targeting, that's more of like a, a regional audience, like, low to mid three figure buy-in area that, that that's uh, if I yeah it. we had event in, in reno we had uh i think the main was 600 and the and the smaller buy-ins down to like 100 mm-hmm. um we do all kinds of unique things we want people to really have a good time so we and we brought in muffins with ninja or cupcakes with ninjas on them. i remember ninja, the stars like, right yeah <laughs> ninja ninja throwing stars and yeah. um the winner of the event got uh, a, a legitimate handmade Japanese sword with the word winner uh, in Japanese on it right. with like a display case and the whole thing. That was a, 
uh, quite an adventure because like security wouldn't let us display the sword <laughs> without like a like a, a carefully locked case where no you know we couldn't show it to anyone because the thing's actually sharp it's legit so sure um and and casinos aren't big on having uh big large bladed weapons around the <laughs> around the floor how do you fly back with that after you've won the tournament that's a, that's a whole other to well, do we had to get it there and yeah. we did discover you, you certainly can check it like you can put it in a suitcase okay. and check it um, but the case that it comes in is too big for a lot of suitcases. Hmm. So we, if, if someone wins it from out of town, we will ship it to them Got instead it. of, instead of making them try to figure out how to get it home. Right. The Katana will a, come to you. Right. Yeah. We have another one. We, we, we had another event scheduled when the pandemic hit, hmm. uh, at, at Atlantis. Wow. Um, and had to cancel it. So we have another sword just waiting downstairs. Okay. So what, I mean, just obviously it's so difficult to plan anything these days as always, you know, anything could in principle come up, but as, as far as maybe possibly a, a cautious estimate, when do you think iNinja may be getting back into operations? When do you hope rather that would happen? I think we'll be doing something in the spring again at Atlantis and possibly in Monarch. Awesome. I think in the spring of next year, but Very good. um that's a tough call. We we might have somebody pop up and say, hey, we really need you to do something in the fall. Somebody who has a new poker room and wants to promote it or, or something else. Uh, so it's very hard to predict. Got it. All right. Oh, well, I do wish you uh, luck, obviously, and hopefully uh, everything in poker continues to rebound. And obviously, when you got a poker tour, uh, that's just generally good for our game in general. So I hope it does happen for you uh, as yeah. planned. The big lesson we learned was being good for the poker world doesn't always uh translate to being good for your tour yeah you know we i did a lot of research in and what bring what players complain about is not what brings them to an event like mm-hmm. they 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 complain about the rake and the structure they complain a lot about structures um the the things that they say uh they have problems with it with other tours you know and the broadcasts um and then when we found found information on what actually makes people show up it's really just the size of the prize pool it's the size of first place is really like kind of the, the big thing that brings people in and satellites help some. So, okay. so if you already have a big following, you you continue to have a big following, even if your rake and structure is not very good, even if you're, you know, um, so you so success breeds success and you have to spend a bunch of money on advertising, doing big guarantees, which are a big risk. Um, it makes there's a real barrier to entry for a small tour to get started. So interesting you know, that took to, a lot to of creativity. That. Right. It's interesting to hear that perspective. I mean, we take it for granted now as players and as consumers of this live poker world. Okay, well, this is happening and you see the ad for this tour and this event. But from that perspective of trying to put it on, it's interesting to hear about, like you said, these, I guess, barriers to entry and what it is that people really are looking for that you know matters bottom line in terms of how many people are showing up. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Our hope, my hope as a, as a, as a, tournament player was that we could offer great structures and great rake and that we would have such big crowds that we could then force those things on the casinos and kind of use them as leverage say uh we're going to use our rake structure which is good we're going to use our um payout structure which is good we're going to use our you know i know a lot about tournaments and my our business partner brian is actually a tournament director so Uh he designed all of our payout structures and all that stuff and i thought if we do like a low rake good structure, friendly event with lots of, and we, we get lots of friendly people and it's a fun event that people will just flock to this thing and it'll be great. When in fact, 
Uh, most of the questions I got were, is there a guarantee? How big is the price pool going right. to be? How big is the field going to be? And I, I kept replying, for that value. bigger yeah. if you show up. Like right. if you support us in this thing, it gets better and better. Because if if everybody shows up to support us, if we had doubled our field at Atlantis last year, they would be begging to have us back right. and telling us we could charge, telling us we could set whatever rules we wanted. Right. And then the rake would go down. The structure would get better. You know, all the extras and the bonuses would get better. We'd have a buffet for the players all day. We do all these, you know, all those kinds of things. So the more people we get, the more that works. And I really thought, all right, the poker community is going to be going to be really helpful with this because they can see that we're doing these things right. And, and then people just said, well, is there a guarantee? They just didn't. And a lot of people just didn't show up at a number of our events because they, they were worried they wouldn't be big enough right. to matter. So um, I, it, as it turns out, that barrier to entry is having enough money to put up for guarantees and to put up um, advertising and things like that. That's the real barrier to entry. And, and it kind of... Uh, I kind of, I guess I should have known that like poker players just want to play poker for giant piles of money. They, they aren't right. really a, a community based group. Well, and like you said, also, there's sort of that, that tipping point. Once you've reached that sort of level and, and have that, you know, first or second, whatever it is, event that the people do come, then they sort of know to expect and like, you know, I guess the snowball sort of rolls from there, but it is certainly hard to, to reach that point. Um, Absolutely. The, yeah. the, the Atlantis event went well enough that everybody, you know, everybody told us they had a great time. They loved the party before they loved the environment, the whole thing. And, and so a lot of people told us they were coming back next year. And I feel like that snowball effect will work in that one spot, but then we have to just do that over and over again at new right. places because not a lot of people are going to travel for these smaller events, right? People don't right. fly across the country for a $600 main event so much. Right. So we'd end up having to rebuild this thing at each each stop. Well, uh, like any uh, any good draw hand, you got to get one card at a time, I guess. Right. <laughs> I suppose. Well, we like to ask folks uh, who come here on the Card Chat podcast about their proudest moments or accomplishments in poker, and we found a little nugget in an interview you did from a while back with Red Chip Poker, where you said that surviving Black Friday is your proudest poker achievement. And that strikes me as a little bit strange because, you know, hey, you know, you want, you, you want a prestigious 10K WSOP bracelet, and yet you feel that this was even more, you know, important, your proudest achievement. Why is that? Yeah, I was, I mean, the happiest moment was certainly winning the 10K bracelet. So I couldn't stop smiling for 10 minutes. It looks <laughs> ridiculous. But uh and 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 I know that I'm a good mixed game player. I made a living playing high limit mixed games on full tilt for a long time. It's not like I think I just lucked into a bracelet, but you you don't win that bracelet. The, the best player in the field doesn't doesn't win the bracelet very often, right? Sure. And, it, and it's not a direct indicator that you're really a world class player. It doesn't, you know, it sort of proves things to people, but it sort of doesn't. Whereas, and and there's just some luck involved there. Um, whereas surviving black Friday was a much harder thing to do. It took me a really long time. Um, and, and that was all skill. I mean, I had to just, I spent about eight of the next 12 months or nine of the next 12 months on the road, um, playing cash games in small rooms around the country where there were big tournament series. So I could pray on the tournament players, uh -huh. um, playing smaller buy-in tournaments, staying in cheap hotels, keeping my expenses down and sending money home. Wow. Um, a proper you know, grind, like a yeah, you know, I mean, game my, selection, but like to, to the extreme. Yeah. My, wow. my bankroll went from well over a hundred thousand dollars to around 
fifteen thousand dollars when Black Friday happened. Wow, wow, that's amazing. And and then I had a, an income that it was being generated from our poker training site and and rakeback, and we were had tons of players through that, and all that was just immediately gone. Everything disappeared. So not only my bankroll, but my income just was decimated. It was it was a rough day. So I had to just hit the road and and rebuild and make you know put it back together. And really the by the time the bracelet happened, I, I was comfortable with, you know, I've, I've done this now and I'm uh-huh. paying the bills easily and I'm, I'm, I've got everything figured out. Right. So that was easier then. Right. I guess it was a good three years in between uh, Black Friday and between the bracelet. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, you know, truly prolific at mixed games. Uh, and we'll ask a couple of questions about that. But how did first game uh, mixed games first enter your life? What attracted you to stuff beyond Texas Hold'em? Uh, I was playing on full tilt and I get, I get poker ADD. I just get bored with games and I'd already played sit and goes for a living. And I'd already played heads up, sit and goes for a living. And I'd already played cash games, no limit, hold them cash games. And I'd already played limit, hold them cash games. And I was, I was playing like two, four and three, six, no limit games on full tilt a lot. And uh, I was just getting pretty bored with it. So I jumped into a PLO game. I was also doing a little bit of bonus hunting, and I jumped into a PLO game on Doyle's room. Oh, wow. And RIP Doyle's room. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that, that, that sort of dates the whole story, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I got smoked in equity my first hand, but won anyway. I, I made the, the, the dumb beginner mistake of getting, you know, raising, re-raising pre-flop with aces and then piling it in on a 10 high board with my, with my two aces, thinking yeah, I was well. good. And of course, the guy had a set of 10s. I mean, this is like, this is what what I prey on now. Right. But like, yeah, it's a super dumb beginner mistake. And I was playing 1020. That's the, the, the no limit hold'em game that I was playing. And I looked over and the PLO pots were way bigger. So I went over to play PLO. Just to just see how the game was. Just a bigger game. <laughs> yeah. So we piled, we each piled in like two grand. Wow. And I won like a $4,300 pot when the ace came on the turn. Wow. And the guy berated me and told me how terrible I was and exactly why. Yep. And he was right. Yep. And it was the dumbest thing he could have ever done because I was going to give that four grand back. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and instead, I mean, I learned something just in seeing the hand play out, but mm-hmm. I learned a lot more from this guy explaining to me exactly why I made the wrong play and how I should play next time. And what, I mean, he, this guy gave me this whole education. Wow. And so I out said, of anger, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Trying to teach me a lesson. And, and what wow. he taught me was I needed to go learn a lot more about this game before I played it. So I actually just typed into the chat window, you're right, I better leave before I give this money back and go learn some things about this game, and then left. I, th- I thought, this guy must be at home tearing his hair out now. Right, right. Thinking so that you're just hitting playing. and running, but in fact, you actually learned something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Gosh. so I, I started playing a little bit of PLO, and then on full tilt, I noticed they had a horse game, and I like uh limit games i think they're fun and, and my uh co-author in my first book and business partner adam stemple's an excellent stud player he plays a lot of stud eight and raz so he taught me the basics of those games and i started playing one two horse on wait hold on hold on you didn't know those games at all you had never played those games prior to this story that you're describing well i knew a little bit about plo but i hadn't really played it wow my goodness and then but in Within a but couple I, of years, but, you're playing the 10K horse. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. My, the rise through the the limit mix games was really fast. I mean, the games were pretty soft back then on full tilt, but I started playing one, two, 
fixed limit game just as as fun with an extra table while I was mm-hmm. playing a couple like two, four, three, six, no limit games. Right. And then <clears throat> as I as I determined I was consistently beating a level, I would move up. And I went from one, two to 50, 100 in about a year. Wow. And then at 50, 100, the games got a lot tougher. And then I was playing with a lot of red pros who were very good. Like some of the red pros at the like eight, 16 and 15, 30 were, were, were great prey because mm-hmm. full tilt was giving away so much money that these guys would just get paid on Friday and like come dust right. off that money. Like, you know, yep. but uh, when I got to 50, 100, then my opponents were much stronger. And suddenly I was playing with Jen Harmon and Mike Mattisau and these people who knew these games. Uh, so then I started kind of really studying and making spreadsheets and, um, you know, learning things about the game that, that just weren't taught in books anywhere, running equity numbers and things like that. And then um, progressed up within the next like year or so moved up to 200, 400 and had a summer where I played 200, 400 a lot and made a lot of money and was, was really doing well, but was stressed out all the time. And every time I moved up a level, it would be stressful for a week or two and then I would get used to it. And then when I moved from 100, 200 up to 200, 400, I just didn't, I couldn't get used to it. The, the swings were so big. And I, you know, if I'm down $8,000 at the end of the day, like, you don't want to be around me. Right. Right. And so I decided <laughs> poker just shouldn't ruin my day anymore. And when I moved back down to 50, 100 okay. and 30, 60, I was happy and I was still making good money. And I was, I was happy now, like after the swings in the bigger games, those smaller swings didn't bother me. And if I was down a thousand at the end of the day, I just would be, would be, be fine. And I'd go to dinner and not, it wouldn't even bother me. You could still play your A game. Yeah. And yeah. I was much happier that way. Mm-hmm. So, that was a good life lesson for me. So I'm wondering something. So you're talking about your progression through the stakes from one, two, all the way up. And, and you know, I couldn't help you. Know, we look at the, um, at, at your result, you have this huge 10 K, horse bracelet you're playing you hit one you know over half a million dollars yet a week before winning that event you finished ninth in a 200 dollar horse tournament at binions for <laughs> about 500 bucks so i'm kind of wondering like I've forgotten about that right is, is this sort of like a difference between online and live or did you play the binions event just sort of as a warm-up for the big event can you kind of explain the the stake differential there you know, when I play like no limit games or when I play cash games, I try not to swing a lot between limits because it can be really frustrating to have like a down session in a big game and then go play a game that's a quarter of the size and know you'd have to crush this game for a week to get this money back. And it yeah. can affect you mentally. But with tournaments, I don't have that problem. If there's whatever tournament is the best value for the day, mm. I'll just go play it. And that Binions tournament, if if it's if I remember right, and I think that that it was the same for a while. It was this absurd structure with this like 50 K starting stack and amazing structure for a $200 buy-in. And it was not just a tune up for the horse, but also just very profitable for me. You know, my ROI, I think is very good in that tournament and it's a fun tournament to play. I love mixed game tournaments. So uh, it was, it was just that there was that much value in it. And also when I was that year, I was playing, you know, anything under like a thousand bucks, I was playing on my own money. I'm very aware of how big the swings and tournaments can be. You know, if I don't have a hundred buy-ins for a tournament, at least I'm not even considering it on my own money, but I sold a big package investment package that year. Right. And so, so I was playing the 10 K's on the, uh, in fact, all the world series stuff I was playing on the, on that investment package. And then the $200 tournaments I was playing on my own. 
So that $200 tournament, if my expectation in that tournament is maybe $300, that's money I put in my pocket. Right. If I'm playing a 1K at the series and my expectation in that tournament is maybe $700 or $500, I'm putting approximately half that money in my pocket. And it ends up being less valuable than the $200 tournament at Binion's for me long-term. Right. And, and yet this one, as you said, obviously was absurdly special, you know, to win that first bracelet in a huge event. You're, you're smiling from ear to ear for 10 minutes. And I remember you did something very, very special uh, with that bracelet. Would you like to, to share uh, with our audience what you did? It was pretty cool. Yeah, that was really fun. I've known Brandon Shaq Harris for a lot of years. In fact, I've known him longer than I realized at first because we used to play a lot on Full Tilt together, but I didn't know it was him. So when I met him later at, at a table and we started talking and then I went, oh, I like this kid. He's all right. And then somebody said, oh, yeah, her ghost. And I was like, "Her that's her ghost? Oh. Like, I know that guy. <laughs> I used to play with him all the time on Full Tilt and I didn't know that's who he was. So we, we kind of became pals and, and we had dinner and he had won a bracelet that year as well. And he was writing out thank you cards to, to all of his investors. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's such a cool idea. In fact, I should take that like farther. And so I designed these giant playing cards, maybe, maybe, I don't know, 10 by eight or something uh, that were glossy on both sides. They were very pretty. And they just said, um, when I won the world series bracelet, I had it sized and because it shows it came, it was huge. It was like this big, like it would never go on even Myris. So I had it sized and I had them cut the links into, I think it was 18 parts, however many investors I had that year. Mm -hmm. And so I had these little chunks of, of the links mm -hmm. too. And then I had them, I bought glass vials with sterling silver tops that screw onto them. You can put them on like a keychain or a necklace or whatever, or you can mm -hmm. just keep them. And I put one of those into each of those 18 vials. And when I sent out the package, I sent out this card that said, you know, enclosed as a piece of the World Series bracelet. Thanks for having faith in me and, and letting me achieve my dream. And this was yeah. great. And then enclosed as a piece of the actual bracelet. So my parents invested a small amount that year, which was the first time they'd ever oh, invested. So my mom beautiful. still has that on a necklace. Wow. <clears throat> and wow. my dad had the the cards like put in a frame on in his office. And I'm sure that was like great. Like when people show up and ask about that, Oh, my son won that tournament up there. Yeah. And okay. I have some other friends that there were multiple people at the wedding who had the piece of the bracelet on their keychain with them and stuff. It was cool. Oh, it's heartwarming. That's a beautiful And one thing. of the pictures of it actually got, well, kind of went semi-viral on Facebook and got shared like 40,000 times or something. Wow. Wow. Very glad. Cool. such a heartwarming and touching story. And, you know, I, I know you, you've written tomes about backing and about staking. And I imagine after, you know, showing that sort of gratitude for those who've invested in you and in place their faith in you, you've never really had a problem selling packages since then, I'm guessing. If I've needed to. Yeah, that, that certainly helps. If you're if you do that for your backers, the people remember you. Absolutely. Yeah, that helps a lot. Good, good little tip there, everybody. Um, could you perhaps quantify, I mean, for those of us, let's say like me, who haven't really played, you know, you've played the full gamut. You've played, you know, $200 mixed games uh, events, you know, the 1500 bracelets, a 10K. What sort of difference in, in qualitative skill are you looking at when you sit down at the felt and, and, and how do you adjust to these different skill sets or if, if there is one? Maybe it's yeah, just well, there's a money. huge difference. Yeah. Um, 
in the $200, I think the, the range is a little smaller than it is in no limit events, at least it, it, compared to what it used to be in no limit events. I think these days, everybody's pretty good at no limit compared to five years ago, but that range is a little smaller where the, in this, in the lower buy-in events, the players are, are maybe a little better than you would expect. And in the bigger buy-in events, they're maybe not as good as you would expect. You know, I think the, the field in a 10 K um, stud eight or Raz or, or horse is softer than the field in like the 10k pot limit hold'em or some of those other kind of specialty events where almost everybody in the event is really strong. Um, in the $200 events, when people are making mistakes, it's usually that they're passive and loose. They're calling down too much. You don't run into that much in a 10k. Uh -huh. The mistakes they make are not raising in spots when they should, not folding the occasional you know spot where they know where there's going to likely to be a raise behind them. Um, they make a few starting hand mistakes and then, and then some of it's pride, those 10 K players, they really don't want to, you know, they don't want to look bad. So sometimes they'll fold bad hands yeah. because they don't want to <laughs> show down a bad hand and it will influence them to fold too much. And sometimes they'll call down too much because they don't want to be bluffed or they, they think that you started with a bad hand and they at least get to show that they started with a better hand than you. And so they'll, right. you know, they'll dust off a big, a big chunk of chips just to show that they did that and that mm. you had a bad hand to start with. Cause that's what they think happened, mm. but those, you know, they're, they're much smaller mistakes and they're usually mistakes in, in lack of aggression in uh, the bigger limits. You know, when we figure out what GTO solutions are for a lot of these mixed games, we're going to probably discover that they're wildly aggressive. And that mm. seems to be what we always learn when we discover any new GTO solution is like, wow, this is the actual solution to this game is crazy. Wow. Okay, very interesting. Well, I mean, as we're speaking now, just a few days, we're just a few days away from the 2021 WSOP. Uh, I imagine you've at least started to, to perhaps plan your, your playing schedule. Are we going to see uh, Chris Walls taking a shot at the big 25K horse, or maybe there's some other uh, you know mixed game events on your radar? I hear there's going to be a good $200 horse tournament at Westgate. Uh, also, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I am going to play the 25k horse like the okay. first day. Yep, That's I'm excited one. about that. Good luck, okay. and I'm definitely going to play the mixed game series that you're running at um, Westgate. Yep, uh, I have kind of a hole in my World Series schedule from like the third to the tenth because uh, there's your there's your thing, and then there's a couple concerts I want to see, and I want to take like a little time off to see people who are in town. And then starting on about the 10th, I'm playing almost every day. I've got, I've got, you know, this big schedule put together. I'm definitely going to play the 10 K horse as well. And the 10 K stud eight and the 10 K Raz, and then a bunch of smaller stuff. All the smaller mixed game bracelet events are on my schedule. And then I'll play some no limit in between and I'll see how the sit and goes are going. Cool. What would you advise someone who, I don't know, let's say they're a home game hotshot or, you know, they've played in their local, you know, tournaments, that sort of thing and say, okay, you know, it's time to go to Vegas and, you know, I'm all vaccinated. I'm ready. I want to go and, and play in these mixed game tournaments to take a shot. What sort of advice uh, would you have for someone in playing, you know, their, their first time, or maybe they just turned 21 and it's their first opportunity uh, to play specifically in mixed game events at the world series. There's a huge jump between the two three hundred dollar mixed game tournaments and like the one and like a one k or fifteen hundred at the World Series, and I think you learn a great deal playing in a few of those one k fifteen hundred events at the series. Um, the variance is so big that you're not going to your results are not going to be indicative of your skill level very often. So you're not going to learn how good you are, 
but you're going to learn how good other people are. And you're going to see what things they're doing and you can watch the good players and mimic what they're doing. How many hands are they playing? How are they responding to raises in three bets? And, you know, when they, when they go to showdowns, what are they tending to show down? You can learn a bunch that way. And you get a lot of play in those events, right. you know, in a, even well, in a 50 phenomenal, right. Yeah, the it, the structure is really good. I haven't looked at the structure this year, and they change them every couple of years. But in general, the structures have been very good. And in in the ten Ks where they're doing the double levels for all the first day, those structures are fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I would uh, study up. You know, there's uh, lots of mixed game content online. Not nearly what there is for No Limit, but there's there's definitely some stuff you can study up on. There's uh, Dylan Lynn's book, who I think Dylan's going to be at the at the mixed game thing at the Westgate. Yep. There's uh, Ken Lowe's book. I right. over my bookshelf. Yeah. Um, uh, there are, there's uh super system too, which has some cool stuff on stud eight in it. Sure. There's, um, you know, there's lots of, of ways to get better at these games. Even um, what's the old two plus two book called high low split poker, mm. which has uh, mostly written by Ray Z and has some awesome content in it. And that book's like, definitely more than 20 years old might be 30 years old um and still has like a lot of good stuff between that and super system that you can actually get a pretty good uh feel for 08 and stud eight and then you know there are a few games it's it's hard to learn much about i I don't know where you study raz um (laughs) i studied it by making spreadsheets and running equity calculations myself and figuring out I don't know if anybody else ever cared about Raz enough to do this when by the time they were computers that you could do it with. Right. So I figured out how often I should be stealing with various hands hmm. by just running tons of calculations. It's crazy because to I was playing. You say that. I mean, you're, you're talking like the same exact type of, of, of methodology that Doyle was using 50 years ago for, to figure hold them out. You know, before there were any books to study, like there's no yep. one else had done it before. Yeah. Wow. And when I was able to use computerized spreadsheets and, and equity calculations, and it was much faster. Right. But I could figure out like how often when I have um, a low card up and a low card down and a garbage card. Right. Should I be stealing through two players or should I only be stealing through one player and, you know, against the bring in? depending on dead cards and all those kinds of things. And those calculations are so much simpler in Raz. Raz is mm-hmm. absurdly simple. Sure. That I was able to figure out a lot of things that in Hold'em just, you know, took solvers. And I was able to just figure them out in with like a spreadsheet and some running some numbers because it's so much simpler to come up with these. And the situations are so much, have so much more in common. Right. You know? And it makes I have so much more automatic as well. And you could think about other things while you're just, you know, reacting as you're supposed to. to, to Absolutely. And if I have seven, four Jack or seven, four queen or seven, four, nine, my equity is almost always, my equity is very similar. And so I can, I can, I don't have to run each calculation. Whereas with Hold'em, if you have Jack nine or Jack seven, there's a lot, you know, you don't know which side of the line either of these hands is on and you've got to run all the, all the hands. Right. And, and in Raz, I just didn't have to do that nearly so much. I could figure out where the line was and then just know um, all the things that it was easier to find that line. Right. So I did that kind of work with Raz, but I, but with most of the other games, there's, there are books you can read. There are some training stuff that's been done. I've done some, I've done training uh, on mixed game with mixed games with a bunch of different websites. I did a PLO thing for red chip and, um, 
I think I did a horse thing for Ivy League, but I don't know if that site even still exists. And I know I did some mixed game stuff for Poker X Factor and maybe some for a few other. I've worked for so many poker training sites that these right. days I can't even remember all of them. <laughs> Goodness. I mean, I think it's so interesting also. I mean, like, let's take, you know, I think I'm a decent example of this. Someone who's been playing, you know, recreationally in home games, very low stakes for a very long time, all the different sorts of mixed games. And yet, to hear you speak about the way you approach Raz, it, it's make, you know, it makes it so obvious to me, okay, this man is clearly a professional player, thinks about it, you know, again, not necessarily as a job, but more scientifically, studiously, whereas, you know, oh, these cards look good. I think I'll go for it. Like that, that's the typical recreational player, uh, you know, decision-making that, that you do in, in these mixed games. Um, I want to ask, for that specific reason, it's always interesting to hear the professional's mindset. We got to revisit something, and, and, and I do apologize in advance if this brings up a painful memory, but I just don't know. And, and I think it you know, it'd be mm. very interesting for the audience to hear this. Um, beyond your mixed games, obviously, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you had a tremendous run uh, in the WSOP main event in 2017, uh, a 32nd place finish out of you know, close to 7,000 runners. I mean, that's a hell of a performance by any stretch of the imagination. And I just have to know, in, in retrospect, after you go through six days sitting 10, 12-hour days at the World Series of Poker, you make it all the way except, you know, beyond 31 other players. You have a, a great cash for $214,000. Is that something, that, you, as a professional, that you reflect upon you know, sort of wistfully as, oh, that's the one that got away, or one that said, you know, I did what a lot of people can't do. I made day six. Who can say that? So, so what is sort of your reflection on that? Yeah, it goes back and forth between those two things. Hmm. The day that it happened, I it was I was just real. I was really angry. I mean, you, hmm. you spend six days where you haven't gone broke yet. You you don't expect to go broke, <laughs> yeah. right? You haven't. You've been doing this for a long time and haven't had this result. What you're not expecting this result. And by the time you get to the final fifty, you start to have some very unrealistic expectations about how this is going to go. Hmm. Right. You get to the final 50, you've just busted all these people, but you're still only one of 50 players. And you're thinking, okay, I'm going to make the final table. I've got a shot at winning this thing. This is going to be, you know, you start to, you start, you're sort of spending that money in your head already. Hmm. And I see this commonly in tournaments where people have this winner's tilt where they just haven't gone broken in a long time. They've run good for the day and people are afraid of them because they're running good and have a big stack. And so they start to, play more and more hands and not believe that they could be beaten hands. And then it's a way you can take advantage of those people. Right. Mm-hmm. And most of the table won't be doing it because they'll be afraid of them. Um, and so I was, you know, I also felt like this was a, this was the shot. Like, you, mm-hmm. you know, no, no matter how good you are, you might never make the final 50 of the main event. Like right. there's some great players who've never done that. And um, I thought this was this was a, a place where I had a chance, and I also knew there were there's some really bad players still in the field, and it made mm-hmm. me really mad to know that these like I know this guy's terrible, and this guy's terrible, and this guy's terrible because you've played with them <laughs> for days, right? <laughs> yeah, um, and to watch these people then you know punt off these punt off massive stacks, mm. and just thank God if you give me that stack, like. And and not just lamenting, but realistically, if you give me that stack, I'm almost always going to make the final table. And right. you dusted off there. I couldn't like, you know, it, uh, but, you know, so right after the thing happened, I'd already had 
when I went broke, I had $214,000 locked up. That was the worst I could do. And right. then that's what I did. So what I felt like was this is the worst result I could have had uh. after I got to this point. So, you know, standing in line, ready to get paid over $200,000, just really irritated. Uh. And, and I'm aware of like how great my life is, you know, it hasn't been perfect, but like I'm a white male in America intelligent, like over six feet tall, healthy, like had great parents and a good education. Like my, you know, my life has been great. So I don't lament much or complain much about my situation. So I'm standing there really irritated with this, with this $200,000 payout ticket. And I know I can't say like, I'm not going to complain much. Right. My life has been pretty good today, but, um, but I was really irritated by it. Like the first thing the uh, first thing I did after I got the ticket was head to the hooker bar at the Rio and, and have a Corona in each hand. Like I was, uh, I wanted to, yeah, I just was so irritated and also didn't feel like I could complain much about the irritation yeah. I felt, nor, okay. nor did I have a lot of friends who've had that, that experience. Right. right. And, you know, and usually I mean, if, if, somebody, you're, if you're cashing a ticket for 214 K you've won or, or you runnered up, you know, a very, very yeah. good tournament. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to hear somebody complain about making $200,000. Right. Like I wouldn't want to listen to it either. Goodness. Uh, and how about having now? another deep run after that uh-huh. right. to, to finish like in the two hundreds, I think or three hundreds um, that sort of made me feel like, Oh, I can, I can continue to do like, this is a thing that might happen again. I'm going to have more shots at this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and now I get it when, you know, when Helmuth says the, the worst day of every year is when you bust the main, I get it now. Like once yeah. you've had a couple of deep runs, you start to think, oh, this is the thing I can do. And then when you, when you bust and then you're now you're very irritated. It's, 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 you know, with all the proliferation of poker and tournaments and even 10 Ks everywhere, there's still just one main event. And, and it's something very, very special that it really does, does come around once a year. And, and there's just no feeling like it uh, in poker. That's for sure. And the value is so amazing that, that you're also thinking as a professional, you're thinking oh, there's only one day a year where I can <laughs> yeah. enter a 10 K and I might be worth like a hundred percent ROI. Right. Like, th- like this event is so good that when you bust that event, you're just really thinking like, this is, this is a, a shot I get once a year to make a giant pile of money. And, and it wasn't, and it didn't happen this year. Hopefully, uh, those of us who have not yet had the chance to uh, provide that value for professionals such as yourselves uh, will someday get the opportunity to, to enter. You haven't the had main. the chance to play the main yet? Not yet. $10,000 is, is a lot of money. Yeah, it's a business <laughs> so, expense for you. Uh, you, I don't know. A, you could, you could write articles about, about it for it, years. Yes. <laughs> if I could write a book about it, perhaps, or just uh, sell 94% of it, then maybe. Uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, well, away from the felt, uh, and as I mentioned, you've also seen success as a strategy book author and a coach. Um, so let's talk about your book. It came out last year, uh, Short Stack Ninja. So tell us about this book. Why did you, fo- why did you decide to focus on that one area in particular and how'd you come up with the name? I think that the poker literature is really lacking in that, mm-hmm. on that, in that area. And it's also very quantifiable. It's something that I had quantified for myself and have taught a ton of students. Um, I actually was, I was at a table years ago and there was a guy three to my left. It was a young guy who was restealing, which is, between you know whatever range you think, but 10 and 20 big blinds approximately 
Um, and when somebody raises and you shove over the top of what you think is a light raise with between 10 and 20 big blinds, it's a resteal. And he was restealing a lot and correctly and doing it well. And this was a problem for me because he was just on my left mm. and I had a stack and I wanted to be able to keep punishing the table. So I actually mentioned it to a, a couple times, like to point out to people at the table, this is what he was doing so that people would be more likely to call him because if they bust him, my problem is over with. If they double him up, my problem is also over with. Right. Right. I only continue to have this problem if people keep calling, people keep folding to it. Hmm. So then that night when I got home, I got a message on a, a poker forum that said, Hey, I just wanted you to know uh, I was the guy, I was a kid who's restealing on you all day. And I was listening to your resteal podcast from Poker X Factor <laughs> while I was doing it. Amazing. <laughs> so I saw the kid the next day and he showed me his iPod. And he's got just a, all, a whole list of all my podcasts and he's wow. listening to the Steel series that I had done. Wow. And that was the first time that it really pointed out, like I'm actually hurting my own value significantly when I'm making some of this training stuff. Yikes. It's, it's, it really does make somewhat of a difference. <laughs> and, and so I've, I've made trainings, uh, instructional stuff and also worked with a ton of students on these short stack concepts so much, and I don't see anybody else covering them. And it's, it's fun to write about things that you can quantify, right? Like right. the push fold thing. When 25 years ago, there were no push fold ranges. Mm -hmm. we, we didn't know these things, right? And then somebody like the Hold'em Resources guys and a few other people like came up with these Nash calculators where you could figure out exactly what the push fold ranges were. And that was super fun. Everybody loved that. I loved it. I, I was one of the sit and go players who spent all my time memorizing push fold ranges when now I just tell people to kind of memorize three ranges and, and then like know where you are in that, in that, you know, to, to adjust them. But I actually did that. I don't remember most of them anymore, but I used to know whether Jack nine was a shove with eight big blinds for middle position and like all those things. And when you can quantify stuff like that, it's really fun. It's, and it's easy to write about. So um, I just had this idea that nobody's written about this stuff, that it's a thing I know a lot about. It's a book I could write quickly. So I wrote most of it on a road trip to uh, Minnesota mm -hmm. like two years ago. Uh, wrote a lot of it in the car while my wife drove. And nice. um, and the name kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a term that's been thrown about forever. I've been called that. There's like I've heard from at least three people who say, hey, you stole my nickname. That's me. <laughs> um, it's a term that's been in use for longer than any of these people probably have played poker. But um, I don't know who used it first. I just knew it was a great title for the book. Sure. And that, and also since I own the iNinja Poker Tour and it seemed like a good thing to use. Yeah, but I did all the you know cover design, editing, publishing, everything myself as well. Nice. So no expenses. and and fairly short amount of time that it took to write it just a few weeks to Super. kind of coalesce all that knowledge into a book. Who would you say that, um, I guess is the target audience, uh, for your book. And would you say, um, that it's particularly helpful for, I don't know, intermediate players, or it's also good for beginners or even for experts like that. Who, who, who should be buying this book? Yeah, I think it covers the whole range of Hold'em tournament players. So the, the only people it's not good for are cash game players who almost never play short stacks um, and mixed game players because it's all hold them. Right. Um, the concepts apply to PLO as well, but they apply like in much more extreme ways to PLO because the, 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 um, the hands run so close together. 
in terms of equity. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've heard from, you know, beginner, it's great for beginners because you're going to end up short stacked a lot and it teaches you pretty in pretty simple, clear ways how to handle a short stack. It teaches you which weapons to use. And those weapons apply as stacks get bigger as well. Like understanding these concepts is important because it's really a course on stack to pot ratio. That's really like which weapons you have with various stack to pot ratios. And uh, it's certainly intermediate players will get maybe the most out of it, uh, but beginners will learn a great deal from it. And I've had a lot of other pros and serious players tell me this is these are ways I didn't think about these hands before. In particular, the zero to five big blinds section, where uh, I know a lot of fairly strong players, people who play tournaments for a living, still have a sort of the approach of, um, I'll, I, I have a hand I better pilot in. Right. And, and there's way more thinking you can do about that situation. Hmm. And, you know, the push fold thing convinced a lot of people that from zero to 10 big blinds, you're either all in or you're not. Right. Right. I told people that 10 years ago because I hadn't thought enough about other options. And then, uh, and in reality, like if there's a min raise and you have four big blinds and you're in the big blind and there's a couple calls of that minimum raise, shoving all in is not nearly as good as min re-raising. Right. If you min re-raise, it makes it cheaper for the original raiser to re-raise and knock these other guys out. And then you can get all in. Mm-hmm. It's not like if you if you go all in with your four big blinds, you're going to make everybody fold, right? So so the, the, the point of using the all-in hammer there is gone. And you're making it cheaper for this guy to re-raise. Or if he calls, somebody else calls, somebody else calls, and I've got this tons of equity in the pot, you're, right, you're getting four to one on your money, three to one on your money. And then maybe the like the last guy who calls can see this and go, Oh, I'll just take all this. Since nobody else wanted to re-raise, they don't really have a hand. Then he shoves all in and you call for your last big blind or two. Right. But now you're still getting like three or four to one on your money and you're in a heads up pot. And so manipulating those situations, whether it's min raising so that you'll get some calls and then the big blind who's got 14 big blinds will shove all in and then you call and then you get you get all these calls in between that have to fold these all these situations that you can engineer uh-huh. to make a lot more money than if you just open stuff these hands sure like real real significant changes in value that i've seen a lot of pros have said i i just didn't think about these really short stacks this way right and especially the, the old first, school pros right and if not the first time or second time these situations do come up Often in every single tournament, so it's certainly uh, very relevant. The book is uh, Short Stack Ninja. Where can uh, people find it and buy it? On Amazon, I do, uh, did all the self-publishing through Amazon, so it's available on Kindle or paperback. Sweet. And I actually have another box of them on the way. I just sold out and had somebody want a signed one, but I'll have I'll have some. I might have some with me at the World Series as well. Cool. I might. Um, I was going to try and get them at the Blue Sharks booth. And then Blue Sharks told me they're not doing a booth this year. I might try to find somewhere to have them for sale at the World Series as well. Cool. Okay. Uh, well, beyond uh, the book uh, and beyond uh, the other stuff you do, you also do coaching. I know you work with uh, Learn WPT. Uh, do you also do private coaching, like like one-on-one? Like people could just sort of like reach out to you and say, hey, would you coach me? I do quite a lot of it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the pandemic, I, I lowered my rates and decided I wanted to do more coaching. And there were, you know, there are a lot of people overseas who are still playing online uh, for a living. 
Like sure. that's, that's a hard thing to do in America. There yeah. are a few people doing it on ECR maybe, and, but like, but there are quite a few people overseas are still doing it. So I have a lot of students in, um, I just had a student in Australia like two days ago. Um, and in Europe, uh, a lot of Northern Europe, a lot of mixed game uh, students from like Scandinavia, they seem really interested in those things. And then I have some live students from, um, from the States who are getting prepared for the world series lessons always increase the two months before the world series. Right. Um, I have a, a group of women who are coming to the series or some of whom are coming to the series who've been preparing for it by taking a, like a group lesson together the last few cool. weeks. That's like super it. fun. Um, yeah. And so I, I really like coaching. In fact, I like coaching more than playing in most cases these days. I think it's really, the teaching is fun. I can do it from home. Um, there are a lot of times where poker, where I'm kind of tired of playing poker for a living, but I'm never tired of talking about the game and coaching and helping other people get better. That part is not old, but I am tired of, of relying on poker for, for money because the ups and downs are so big. Right. And, you know, playing tournaments, you're sitting in these crappy chairs. Uh, you're probably eating crappy food. Um, if you don't like a bunch of the people at your table, it doesn't matter. You're just there. You're just mm -hmm. dealing with them. Um, and I set up my life to not have to do those things. Right. Right. Like I'm sitting in a very comfortable chair. I'm surrounded by guitars and things I like. Um, I, my wife is amazing. I've got a house that I like. I've got a pool and a hot tub when it gets hot. I've got a furnace when it gets cold. I've got, uh, a, you know, a nice coffee machine. Like I have the things I need and then I can, uh, I can build on that and I can go help other people and all these things that I like. Or I can go to a poker room and play a poker tournament where I don't have all those things I like. Right. And I right. can be frustrated by the people I'm dealing with. I, there's no one that I have to deal with in my life unless I'm playing poker tournaments that I don't like. Mm. I'm surrounded by intelligent, friendly, fun people who are interested in the world. You know, I, I would rather have these intelligent, interesting people that I can go hiking with than like be sitting at a table with a bunch of grumpy old mixed game players who are going to argue with each other over nothing. Right. <laughs> Which is constant in mixed games. So, uh, so I'm just, I'm preparing for the world series kind of by like mentally preparing myself. Like I'm, this is, I'm going into battle and I'm going to do battle for seven weeks and I have, it's going to be the busiest seven weeks of my life because I have all these sure. various gigs plus poker plans sure. this year. Well, um, let me ask one question. And I'm going to take a vacation. Right. I, I do want to flip that a little bit because one of the questions we always love to ask uh, our interviewees here on the Cards Chat podcast, uh, who is the friendliest player you've ever had the pleasure of uh competing with and, and sparring against at the felt oh man um i couldn't i couldn't pick just one okay uh i really loved playing with nick showman nice um greg raymer is the one of the nicest guys in poker if you see greg in the hallway and want to stop and talk to him and he's never heard of you before he's happy to sit and chat with you yep um I go out to lunch with Greg when he's in town quite a bit. He's just the nicest guy he's a and good dude. he loves to talk. Yep. And, and I met him because we were at a table together. And when we were, when, the, when we bagged for day two, it was some mixed game event. It might've been the Raz. When we bagged for day two, we were walking out and we were walking down the hallway together, just chatting. And, uh, and Greg was on my right. And on my left walks up, um, Joe Hashem. Oh, wow. And, he, and, and neither of these guys has ever heard of me. I'm nobody. And he looks across and says, hey, champ. And like, and Greg looks over and goes, oh, hey, champ. Now the three of us are walking down the hallway at the Rio. And right. I see a couple of people I know. 
And I was like, this is great. Like I have to make sure these people see me flanked by world champions walking down the hallway. Yeah. And then Greg offered me like a ride when I was going over to Bellagio and Greg offered me a ride, never met oh. me before that. Wow. Day. And wow. and we just kind of became pals where when he, when he's in Vegas, you know, I pick him up and go to lunch or whatever. And um, super nice guy. Yeah. And Marcel Lusk. Oh, the flying I, I saw him. Wow, that's an yeah. old I saw him in the Starbucks outside of the, of the poker area at the Rio. Sure. Yeah, that's, I was with everyone friend. knows that Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. I was with a friend and we were just having coffee and I'm not, I'm not blown away by celebrities and I, I know I've played with most of these guys online anyway, but um, I just said, I said hi to Marcel and I told him, I think you're great for poker. Keep doing what you're doing. I love that you're, you know, that you're making poker fun for people. Yeah. And he said, Oh, good. Come sit down, come sit down. So I, so invited us to his table, people he's never met before. Wow. And then um, I didn't care about taking pictures or anything like that. I want to like talk to this guy. And, and so then he asks me a strategy question and he doesn't, I'm, he doesn't know that I can play at all. He just asks us wow. about like, how would you play this? How would you do this wow. conversation about it? And he has, he has a bunch of interesting strategy insights. And then he says, do you want a picture? And my buddy says, yeah. <laughs> and he says, here, you put the, he takes his sunglasses off and he says, here, you put them on upside down. And we'll do I the love picture. it. Oh, it's the most friendly guy you could meet. Thrill. Super fun to be around at the table. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Great stories there. And, and uh, you, know, you got to give a great uh, shout out to, we did have, Greg Raymer on as a previous guest on the show. That's episode 43. If anyone wants to go ahead and listen to that one after you finish listening to this great episode. Um, Chris, I do want to cover one last area before we get into the questions from the Cards Chat community. Uh, you know, be, besides books, you've been a contributing writer to many poker media publications for a long time, including my own Card Player Lifestyle. Uh, recently, however, you have joined the Cards Chat family. So congratulations. Uh, welcome aboard. And, and maybe you could tell us how did that partnership come to be and what sorts of articles can we expect to see from you? I'm super happy about it. I'm, I'm hoping that it turns into a serious long-term thing where I am the, the poker reporter coverage, um, lifestyle, everything for Vegas, and that that's just a long-term thing because I'm having a lot of fun with it so far. Nice. Um, it came to be because my pal, Kat Martin, who's one of the guys at, at Red Chip, um, had a writing gig and said, hey, I've got some extra writing at the World Series if you want to pick up this writing gig. That's pretty good. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll take, you know, I'm trying to transition a little bit away from poker and then I'm going to play like a $100,000 schedule at the World Series, but <laughs> I'm trying to transition a little bit away from poker. And um, so I said, that sounds great. And, and um, we should find some more of these kinds of gigs. And he said, sure. So I posted on on, on Facebook, on Twitter, oh, wow, you know, that the couple of us were going to do photography and, and writing and whatever people needed, if anybody wanted more. And I got multiple like people telling me, go check talk to this guy, talk to that guy. And Dan Machowski was one of the people I got sent to who, who does the news stuff for, yep. for cards chat. Um, so we had a couple of talks on the phone. It was really uh, I liked what he had to say and he liked what I had to say. I like that they they don't just want uh, straight news because I don't want to be the guy walking around with a clipboard taking chip counts. Right. I'm not really interested in that. It's a, it's fine. And, and, and I'm glad people do that. And some people really like it. Um, I've just been around that for so much that I'm kind of bored with it. Mm -hmm. But if you want in-depth, more interesting stuff and you want me to dig into things and do, you know, more unique things that are interesting to me in writing – that's what I want. And that's what Dan, Dan liked that idea. So this week I've done um, a restaurant review, which will be up sometime this week. Um, 
I've done um, a couple different, uh, did a strategy article um, and, and I'm able to mix it up and get, you know, I can go into a card room, take pictures, talk about the card room and write it up. Mm-hmm. I can, then the next day I can go to um, a restaurant owned by a poker player, have dinner talk about how good the drinks are. Mm-hmm. The day after that, I can interview a, you know, a pro that I know that I think is interesting and talk more in depth about things. It gives me a lot of latitude to right. do more than just show up and and write down chip counts at the kind end. Kind of like of the day. playing mixed games instead of holding. You keep things interesting and then do a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. That's a good analogy <laughs> and, and very accurate. Yeah, it'll keep me interested anyway. Nice. Very cool. Well, I want to focus a little bit on your Baller Eats in Vegas column. Uh, your, your Cards Chat profile says that you are on, quote, a never-ending quest to try every restaurant in Las Vegas. So how's that going? And can you give us a few of your favorites overall? Man, I'm not even close. Um, <laughs> There's a lot. It's a big city, right? It's a, the food here is amazing. It really is incredible. F- food from all over the world and such amazing. Um, yeah, you, you'll see my review of Taverna Costera oh, coming up. Uh, Jeff uh, Wangs, right? yeah, yeah, Jeff Wang, who wrote all the PLO books. Yep, mm-hmm. uh, that'll be coming up sometime. I think probably this week it'll get published. Cool. I had a wonderful meal there. Um, my favorites. Well, uh, Nobu is is the nuts. Um, everybody argues about which food is better, and they they think your restaurant's garbage. There's lots of these kinds of arguments at the poker table among the pros who who all want to be the biggest baller and, and like the most expensive restaurants. But I think Nobu is just the nuts. It's, that place is amazing. The black miso cod is the best dish I've ever had. Okay. So that's the that's the you know the, the expensive spot, but it's really expensive. Right. Um, if you spend three hundred bucks a person there, you're not doing it right. right. <laughs> and uh, I just had like a bunch of um, I have a whole list of of ideas to write up for card chat on these various things, like like you know the best place to eat at the Rio. Like sometimes the Rio options aren't great. But there's a smash burger there and smash burger for fast food smash burger is pretty good and they cool. you can do a, you can do a keto option there or you can get like grilled chicken breasts mm-hmm. and they're solid and they're like a dollar 90 a piece or something like Can't a couple wrong. years ago i would just i would just go to smash burger and get two grilled chicken breasts and like that was it was and it was, it was solid and it would cost me like four dollars to yeah. eat lunch it was amazing <laughs> um across the street at gold coast there's ping pang pong which i just love for cheap Cheap Asian food. Yep. And down the road at the Flamingo, down the road, down Flamingo at like Flamingo and Decatur, almost almost to Decatur, there's a Thai Spice, which is a great like cheap Thai place mm-hmm. uh, that's close to the Rio and it's reasonably fast and it's never busy because they don't advertise very well, but their right. food's very good. I, in fact, I, last time I was there, I ran into Jared Hamby, the Waco kid. Mm-hmm. And he and he and I were having the same. They have this amazing uh, wonton soup and like huge bowls. And he and I were like talking about how great that soup is. Cool. And then you know down the road, the other direction down Flamingo is Lotus of Siam, which is just yeah, world class, yeah. just world class Thai food, and mm-hmm. and not that expensive for how great it is. Mm-hmm. So That's I love all cool. those places. I really like the Cornish Pasty House in the Arts District. I really liked Taverna Costera. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with the fish dish I had there. Um, and I like, uh, on Fremont street, I like nacho daddy's the nacho oh. place. That's okay. cool. They have amazing nachos, huge plates of, of nachos with all these. There's a Thai one. There's a seafood one. There's all these different ones. And they're great. I take people there when they're, when my friends are in town and want to party, we go to Fremont street and then go to nacho daddy's. Awesome. And they have like a world-class selection of, of, um, 
tequilas and that's will get you in trouble but is worth visiting i think uh, we have uh, quite a few very interesting and uh you know great columns to look forward to on cards chat about that i do want to end uh end off with a lightning round question for you maybe we're gonna how about i guess we'll give you um you know the best this and you'll give us your top restaurant pick in each category and then we'll move on to the community questions are you ready i'm ready best burger The Bison Burger at Lazy Dog. Best pizza. Pizza Rock. The Best. Detroit style. Okay. Best sushi. I'm not a big sushi guy. There's a couple of like really high-end places that people rave about, but I really like the the bargain is naked fish. The naked uh, naked fishes. Okay. Uh, Best Italian. Um, it's a tie between, uh, Roma and Nora, Roma Deli, uh, Todd Brunson's place and, and, uh, Nora's. Cool. Todd will be very happy to hear that one. Uh, best exotic. Haleo in the second floor of the Cosmopolitan. Ooh, That's, uh, interesting. Uh, Jose Andres tapas place. Cool. And they do all kinds of weird, rare foods and, uh, chemical gastronomy stuff. They're very interesting. Nice. And last one, best home cooking. Um, I, that's a thing we don't have a lot of in Vegas. We have a lot of the uh, classic American fair thing. There's okay. all these chefs have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about things that are like home cooking. There's a couple soul food places that are okay, but uh, I don't know if those would qualify as home cooking either. I guess okay. I would say... Um, First, like simple American food that is like what you might get at home. Um, there's uh, what's the name of that place? There's a soul kitchen that's very good if you're from the south, and if you're not, and and then also there's um, in Caesars, there's the uh, pub, Gordon Ramsay's pub. I don't remember the name of it, but that is very like comfort food filled with like British comfort food that's also really good at a reasonable price. Nice. Good picks there. Good picks. Well, Chris, we've now reached the segment of the show where we turn to our Cards Chat community to see what questions you guys who are listening and watching wanted to ask our guests. We have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. Uh, First questions come from Crystal's. Crystals, thank you very much. Uh, always really great of you to send in some questions. Um, Chris, are you planning on writing any more books in the future? I am writing. I'm working on a bunch of fiction projects right now, actually. Oh. I'm definitely going to write some more things. I'm, I'm going to be publishing a bunch of fiction. Um, I was halfway through kind of a follow-up book to Short Stack Ninja that is about being exploitive and predatory in in um deeper stack situations and how to read your opponents and this whole this whole circle that is um knowing knowing who they are means that you know what their range is and knowing what their range is and then how to accurately see those ranges based on who they are and what's mm-hmm. happened and then how to attack those ranges by understanding exploitive play and then 
how to defend with your own ranges. And so it's not, there's no GTO involved mm-hmm. really. It's and, and and much of it is not even balanced, but it is how to attack opponents. And I was about halfway through that. And it was a much longer book than short stack ninja when some other writing projects came up that kind of got in the way. Gotcha. So I do have at least one more poker book at some okay. point in the next year. Cool. Okay. Uh, next questions from crystals. Uh, I, I'm curious on this one, cause uh, you mentioned you're trying to, to, ease a little bit out of poker alone and you're doing a whole bunch of stuff. So Crystals wants to know if you could draw up your dream job in poker, what would it be? In poker, um, it would be teaching like a, like a group of students, like a team of students that were all serious tournament players and and just working with those people all the time as they were playing, coming back with questions, trying to like being like the coach of a team, I think would be really, that would be amazing. Cool. And I think some of the commentary jobs would be fun, mm-hmm. but there's just tons of people who want those jobs who are a lot more famous and, and better looking than <laughs> I am. So it's tough to, to get any of those, but I think those would be really fun too. You know, doing all the research on players and then talk commentating on hands would be fun. Cool. Nice. Nice to hear. Uh, and final question from Crystals. What is your favorite variant of poker and why? Oh, it would be one of the super split pot games. So like mm-hmm. Super Stud 8 or Super Res Doogie, one of those. Those games are really fun. Um, super Stud is where you get dealt four cards down. You discard, you discard one and and roll one, or you get three cards down and one up and you discard one depending on how they run it. I like that like Tahoe roll your own style where you get four cards down, you roll one, discard one, and now you're playing a stud game. Right. That gives bad players a chance to play a lot more hands. It gives them an excuse to play a lot more hands. Yeah. You see, so they're more profitable and it's also an extra fun decision. And it means that everyone should really be playing a few more hands. So we get to mix it up more and then and I really enjoy the split pot games. I think there's so much thinking to be done. So if it's super stud eight, right, you're playing a lot more hands and mm-hmm. you're and you're doing all the thinking that is involved in stud eight that you don't that you don't do in stud or raz or even really hold them where you're thinking, you know, based on your opponent's boards, what dead cards there are, what you have, what are your equities in each direction? There's a lot. They're, they're more complicated. And I think more complicated is more fun or super res doogie where you're playing half you're playing a, a Raz hand basically, but with the super start and then half the pot goes to the best Badoogie hand, the best four card Badoogie hand. Right. And that, that like limits the information drastically on one side because they really only need to play one up card for their Badoogie hand. Yep. So yeah, I th- those are, those are my favorite poker variants. They're, they're all stud split pot games. Those are super fun. More action is better. I like it. Very cool. Um, Antonis32123, thank you very much for sending these questions in. Um, Chris, beyond playing how, sorry, besides learning how to play better poker with under 30 blinds, what else is a reader of your short stack ninja book likely to learn? Oh, I think the biggest lesson will be the way of thinking, if you, if you learn how to play each of those stacks and, and, and see what I've done in the book, you end up understanding why that's my hope. Anyway, that, that 
not just that you can memorize these are the weapons that I have in this stack size, and this is when I should use them, but you understand why. And so you're able to then think ahead in hands, even when you're deep stacked and you know that, you know, there's 20 big blinds in the pot and we each have 50 behind. If I bet 12, he's likely to shove. He's going to be set up to have fold equity if he shoves, right? It's going to, the stack sizes are going to be correct. But what if I bet six? Then he, like, it would, might be a little bit of an overshove. Maybe he won't. Or what if I, you know, if I have a draw, now maybe I want to check to him so that he'll bet and I'll shove. And if he doesn't bet, it's not a disaster because I have a draw and I get a free card. Right. So that sort of thinking, even in much deeper stacks, is what I would hope people would learn other than just memorizing the how to, how to use the various weapons of short stacks. Good answer. I like it. Um, and last question from Antonis32123. Um, what are the top skills your students can learn from you as a poker coach? Oh, as I've gotten better at teaching strategy and there's more strategy content out there so that my students are, are showing up better in terms of strategy right. already. I find myself more and more teaching psychology, sports psychology, how to play your best game, how to not be tilted, how to handle these things. I have lots of ideas for how to handle tilt that work pretty well. That I, I think maybe that's another book that I'll write at, at one of these days because I've worked out all these ways and, and tested them on so many students that now I've got figured out a lot of ways to handle tilt. Mm -hmm. So that would be one of the big ones. And, and then I think what a lot of people learn from me is how to look at the game, that how to, how to think through a hand. That's what I want to teach people because there's no secret to memorize. There's just how to, how to look at the game. So who is this person? What do I know about them? What do I know about the situation? What do they know about me? Come up with all this information, right? Know what your situation is in the hand right now. And then what is their range of hands and how does my hand play against this range? I can break their range into chunks sometimes, make it a lot easier, but in general, what do I want here? And then how do I get it? And so getting people to think in these ways is way more helpful than trying to get them to memorize specific plays with stack to pot ratios when you're starting with 150 big blinds or um, GTO opening ranges or you know how to balance when you're in this trying to memorize like how to balance turn bets you know the if you're thinking in an in a predatory way and you know which things to think about and how that whole circle works i think that's what i would like people to take from lessons with me and that's that is what people say is really valuable after after having lessons with me is that they think about the game more clearly I like it. And uh, I had forgotten to ask you before, is another good opportunity, though. So if someone were to want uh, lessons with you, how would they contact you and reach you for those? Either at Fox Poker Fox on Twitter or at blind uh, or blind straddle at gmail.com. Either one works for me. Cool. I have and, I have lots of lesson times open until the 30th and then no lesson times open for like seven weeks. Yeah, right. So get in while you can, folks. <laughs> Um, finally, we've got Acid Burn FX, uh, one of our great regular contributors of questions here. Thank you so much for sending these in. Uh, Chris, what does the real short stack ninja, you, uh, what do you like to do to relax? I love photography and I love hiking out in the, uh, in the national parks around Vegas. I didn't know how much there was to see here because I only came here for poker. 
Right. And then when I started dating Jordan, the first time I came, she took me to Red Rocks hiking and it just, it's just gorgeous. It's amazing. And, and we've got Valley of Fire and Zion and all these local little parks. And, and there's, you know, there's a mountain you can walk to the top of and see the whole, and there's this amazing view of the city. That's like just a few miles from my house. Sure. Um, photograph. I have two cameras sitting on my desk right now. <laughs> um, I love photography. Um, having a ton of fun with wildlife photography. That is really my, you know, my dream job away from poker would be wildlife photography, but it's, it, that's a hard thing to make a real living with. And, uh, and I don't know if I'm willing to do what it, what it, what it takes to make that happen. It, it really most wildlife photographers that are very successful are people who started with a lot of money and right. I've just figured out how to have a hobby that pays them. Okay. Right. But, uh, you know, there's, it's hard to make a living as a wildlife photographer when you need a, you know, 20 or $30,000 in camera equipment mm. and you need then to spend a bunch of money traveling. And then you're trying to sell pictures to National Geographic for 80 bucks. Right. It's, exactly. it's tough to, sure. it's tough to pull that off. But, but I have a ton of fun just hiking in the desert and take doing wildlife photography with what I can find out there with tortoises and snakes and hawks and whatever mm. and hummingbirds in my backyard. So I guess uh, for now, you just have to be content uh, with the wild fish, whales, sharks, and uh, donkeys at the tables taking pictures. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a bunch of photography at the World Series this year. That's like one of the gigs that I, a couple gigs that I picked up have been photography at the World Series, and that'll be super fun. Excellent. Very cool. Um, if uh, Again, from Acid Burn FX, if you could go back in time and tell a younger version of yourself one thing, what would you tell yourself? Well, that's a good question. I made so many mistakes in my life that it's hard to figure out which one would be the best to correct. <laughs> I think I would go back and tell uh, 18 year old me to never get addicted to nicotine. Ooh. That was real. That was really like when, when my little sister was about that age um, and she asked me for advice, I told her don't ever touch cocaine or nicotine. Mm -hmm. Like those two things most everything else you can overcome. Those are two things that I see just destroy people's lives. And so just leave those things alone and don't ever try them. And then, and life gets much easier, you know? And uh, I think that would be a big help. I might also go back to, you know, my 20 year old self and say, learn to write code. You know, I'd be Ooh. retired right now if I'd been yeah. a computer programmer that long ago. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be 48 living in the Bahamas in a, in a nice house with a chef by now. <laughs> cool. Two solid pieces of advice there. Um, the second to last question for you, Chris, um, from Acid Burn FX. What is the most memorable moment in your life? Uh, it's gotta, we're giving it to you easy here it's got to be the bracelet there's been like a lot of them i've done a lot of amazing things i've been very lucky to do a lot of crazy traveling and seeing like wild things happen but i i have to say it's got to be the bracelet that that 10 or 15 minutes after winning the bracelet was was really just couldn't stop smiling and and yeah that was amazing well we won't tell jordan that's what your answer was though, so. <laughs> <laughs> she, she will not be surprised <laughs> very cool and the wedding final... was also the wedding was also amazing and i've had okay. some some trips that were also amazing too so okay yeah good to get that they're okay. all good and the last question for you uh chris what is something that you cannot live without and why 
Um, Acid Burn always asks these great questions. So thank you very much for putting these together. Oh, he's getting something, folks. What's he getting? Aha, what is that? It's a, a Gibson Advanced Jumbo Custom Shop reissue. That's a guitar for those who don't have the video there. Okay. What's this special is, uh, about that versus, let's say, the other two guitars you've got behind you that I see? Three guitars. Um, well, I was a guitar builder. Oh. For uh, about 10 years. And I was a professional musician for a little while. And, and uh, my thing was great sounding acoustic guitars. I love specific acoustic guitars. And, and I built a lot of acoustic guitars. And I love uh, the tone. And that was kind of what my obsession was. Um, I don't care how pretty they are. I don't care how loud they are. I don't even care that much about how easy they are to play. I just love the tone. And that's the best sounding guitar I've ever heard. So that's the one. Great answer. I walked cool. into a music store, uh-huh. had some time to kill because I think my wife was doing something in the in the same uh, strip mall complex or something. And I walked into this guitar center and just went into the acoustic room and started playing some guitars. And I've always loved Gibson acoustics. I have another, I have like a, a 50s Gibson acoustic mm-hmm. here that I love as well. Mm-hmm. I've always loved this, the Gibson acoustics. And so... Um, I picked that one up and I picked a few others up and a few Martins, a few other things. And, and that one just blew me away. It was so much better than all the other ones. And I ended up going back like three times to visit it. It was fairly <laughs> expensive and, and I just didn't, I didn't want to spend like $2,500 on a guitar that when I had a bunch of other guitars already. And, and I kept going back to visit it and I took a friend with me mm-hmm. to back to visit it. And uh, he said, yeah, this is, this is amazing. So I just bought it and now I'm in love with it. You could have just satellited uh, from like a fiddle or a ukulele, you know, and just work your way up to the <laughs> Yeah. Everybody throws in a ukulele. Yeah. And the winner gets back a Gibson Advanced Jumbo. There you go. Yeah. I, I also couldn't yeah. live without Jordan and I probably couldn't live without my pool. Those are, those are the things that bring me joy and certainly a camera. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thanks to everyone who who did send in questions for Chris Wallace. And again, just a friendly reminder to our Cards Chat community, we'd love to see you submit your questions for our future guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you liked the show. Chris, before we let you go, anything else you'd like to tell our audience? No. Bye, Short Stack Ninja. (laughs) <laughs> you can get that you can get that on amazon very cool uh well thanks again very much to chris wallace thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of cards chat i'm robbie straczynski you can follow me on twitter at card player life i wish you all a wonderful day cards chat the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community